Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about singing a song for lovers. Valentine's Day for 2012. This year, a couple of friends of mine, both from America and from England, are going to share a poem called Solomon's Song of Songs. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes, your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you, let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. We rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. How right they are to adore you. Dark am I, yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem. Dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I had to neglect. Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. Why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? If you do not know, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of pearls. We will make you earrings of gold, studded with silver. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Angidi. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are doves. How handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming. And our bed is verdant. The beams of our house are cedars. Our rafters are firs. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall, and let his banner over me be love. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Listen, my beloved, look. Here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My beloved spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. See, the winter is past, the rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth, the season of singing has come, the cooing of doves is heard in our land. 
The fig tree forms its early fruit, the blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. My dove in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding places on the mountainside, show me your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet, and your face is lovely. Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He browses among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle, or like a young stag on the rugged hills. All night long on my bed I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him, but did not find him. I will get up now and go about the city, through its streets and squares. I will search for the one my heart loves. So I looked for him, but did not find him. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. Have you seen the one my heart loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found the one my heart loves. I held him and would not let him go till I had brought him to my mother's house, to the room of the one who conceived me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense made from all the spices of the merchant? Look, it is Solomon's carriage, escorted by sixty warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. King Solomon made for himself the carriage. He made it of wood from Lebanon. Its posts he made of silver, its base of gold. Its seat was upholstered with purple, its interior inlaid with love. Daughters of Jerusalem, come out and look, you daughters of Zion. Look on King Solomon wearing a crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. How beautiful you are, my darling, oh, how beautiful! Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin, not one of them is alone. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon, your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. All beautiful you are, my darling, there is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Sinar the summit of Hermon, from the lion's dens and the mountain haunts of leopards. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine, and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. 
You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden, that its fragrance may spread abroad. Let my beloved come into his garden, and taste its choice fruits. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. I have taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I have washed my feet. Must I soil them again? My beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my cloak, those watchmen of the walls. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, if you find my beloved, what will you tell him? Tell him I am faint with love. How is your beloved better than others, most beautiful of women? How is your beloved better than others, that you so charge us? My beloved is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among ten thousand. His head is purest gold, his hair is wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. His cheeks are like beds of spice yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies dripping with myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with topaz. His body is like polished ivory decorated with lapis lazuli. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as its cedars. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved. This is my friend, daughters of Jerusalem. Where has your beloved gone, most beautiful of women? Which way did your beloved turn, that we may look for him with you? My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to browse in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He browses among the lilies. You are as beautiful as Tirzah, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as majestic as troops with banners. Turn your eyes from me, they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep coming up from the washing. Each has its twin, not one of them missing. Your temples behind your veil are like halves of a pomegranate. Sixty queens there may be, and eighty concubines, and virgins beyond number. 
But my dove, my perfect one, is unique, the only daughter of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. The young woman saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines praised her. Who is this that appears like the dawn, fair as the moon, bright as the sun, majestic as the stars in procession? I went down to the grove of nut trees to look at the new growth in the valley, to see if the vines were budded or the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I realized it, my desire set me among the royal chariots of my people. Come back, come back, O Shulamite, come back, come back that we may gaze upon you. Why would you gaze on the Shulamite, as on the dance of the Mahanam? How beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter! Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hands. Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are like the pools of Heshbon by the gates of Bath-Rabim. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon looking toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like a royal tapestry. The king is held captive by its tresses. How beautiful you are, and how pleasing, my love, with your delights. Your stature is like that of the palm, and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree, and I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples. And your mouth like the best wine. May the wine go straight to my beloved, flowing gently over lips and teeth. I belong to my beloved, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes send out their fragrance, and at our door is every delicacy, both new and old, that I have stored up for you, my beloved. If only you were to me like a brother who was nursed at my mother's breasts. Then, if I found you outside, I would kiss you, and no one would despise me. I would lead you and bring you to my mother's house, she who has taught me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the nectar of my pomegranates. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Who is this, coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I roused you. There your mother conceived you. There she who was in labor gave you birth. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. We have a little sister, and her breasts are not yet grown. What shall we do for our sister on the day she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build towers of silver on her. If she is a door, we will enclose her with panels of cedar. I am a wall, and my breasts are like towers. Thus I have become in his eyes like one bringing contentment. Solomon had a vineyard in Baal Hamon. He let out his vineyard to tenants. Each was to bring for its fruit a thousand shekels of silver.
but my own vineyard is mine to give. The thousand shekels are for you, Solomon, and two hundred are for those who tend its fruit. You who dwell in the gardens with friends and attendants, let me hear your voice. Come away, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the spice-laden mountains. Hi there, this is Rick Moyer, the host of the Take Him With You weekly podcast. My wife Amy and I talk every week about all sorts of cool geeky things going on around our house. Plus, we have some uh, positive words of encouragement and then a subject every week that is sure to uh, make you think a little bit and hopefully encourage you for the week to come. That's our goal. Visit us at TakeHimWithYou.com. You can also find us on iTunes. Just search for Take Him With You. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Thanks. First, before I proceed, I want to give thanks to Ro Karen and Laura Pacora. Uh, Ro Karen is from the Starbase 66 podcast. And if you listen to the greatest events in sporting history, you would have heard Laura recently on the episode about sailing. These are friends of mine that I've met on the Simply Syndicated Forum, and among the many topics that we've discussed are topics about the way Christian education is managed well and, more often, badly, both in Europe and in America. And it really is kind of a good irony that these two friends have helped me out with the first-ever Bible reading of this length for inappropriate conversations, because what we've just done to share some poetry for Valentine's Day is read in its entirety— in the voices that it was intended, in terms of uh, male and female and friends, the book Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, from Hebrew Scriptures, or the Old Testament. From an inappropriate conversation's perspective, this has to raise questions, like, what is a book of Middle Eastern love poetry doing in the Bible to begin with? Or, why do I find it significant enough to quote at this length? One of the things that I want to get to in this commentary, uh, this is not going to be any sort of, of, a, of a biblical exegesis or even an eisegesis. I'm not looking at this from the perspective of a biblical passage. But there is, of course, the opportunity to do some explaining about what's going on inside the Bible. Now, for me, the most important thing is on the political side of the spectrum, what it means that this particular kind of poetry is there, and how do we use this poetry to interpret a correct response to the religious rights attitude about sex and sexuality. Because there's really a pretty clear message that has been sent over the years by religious conservatives. The Bible has a particular set of ideas about sex, and they almost all begin with the word no or the word don't, or perhaps thou shalt not. And yet if you listen to this poetry and take it as it is written, as first and foremost a poem, We'll get a little bit to whether there's an allegory there, but first and foremost as a poem, there is no question that this is a very open-minded attitude towards sexuality, that sexuality is expressed in longing, it is expressed in action, and it is not simply what we might describe as the missionary position. But there's a couple of other things that I think I need to touch along the way. For one thing, what do we make of certain imagery, like the comment, my sister, my bride? What do we do with that? What does that mean? And um, perhaps before I get there, though, I want to make some comment about recent trends in evangelical Christianity, positive trends in some ways, like finally acknowledging what the Bible says about sex, but unfortunately still getting caught up in legalism along the way. 
there are a couple, in fact, more than just a couple of people that we would describe as being part of the religious right or certainly part of, of evangelical conservatism who have used the text from Song of Songs either in, in their church ministry, uh, from the pulpit, so to speak, or in publication, to kind of use it as a springboard to remind Christians that there is a whole lot that is perfectly okay and perhaps even recommended in the Bible that a couple can do together. So anybody who's part of a committed relationship, I don't want to draw a line in the same way that some of these evangelical pastors have. I'm not in a position to cast that sort of judgment to say, well, this has to be within a marriage. Because the problem that we have there is once I draw the line that this has to be within a marriage, then it's going to raise the question of what is a marriage and what do we do about those people who aren't allowed to get married? And then that's just not the topic today, right? And instead, let's just refer to a, a long-term committed relationship. And if it's a more comfortable feeling for you to assume that that's a man and a woman who have been married, then go right ahead. Although there's some indications, a lot of the run away with me, my darling kind of talk in Song of Songs could give a valid interpretation that these people are not yet married, that there is a sense of uh, a need to elope, for example. But aside from the whole question of, again, the, the status, the legal status of a relationship, essentially Song of Songs says that there is very little, if anything, that is off bounds consensually between a couple that is in that kind of relationship. This is not a message that you hear often from the church. Now, I'm not saying that it's not a Christian idea because well, it is. It's clearly a Jewish idea. It comes from Jewish scripture. But you'll hear this perhaps in pastoral counseling. And it wouldn't surprise me that the way we raise and perhaps indoctrinate some people inside the church, that a young couple who's recently been married might need that kind of counseling to say, yeah, your husband's allowed to touch you there. Um, it's not inappropriate that you want to touch him in this way. Because in certain parts of our country, I have little doubt in my mind that people have been raised with this attitude that the missionary position is the only thing that the Bible sanctions, that you could be struck dead by lightning if you even think of one of the other, quote-unquote, impure thoughts. Well, there's nothing in Song of Solomon that is off-limits in the bedroom. Therefore, uh, talk about fragrance, talk about touch, talk about desire— References to specific body parts and cryptically references to other body parts, perfectly acceptable and totally, uh, well, it would actually be a neurotic pathology of some sort if a married couple didn't feel that they could engage in those kinds of passionate embraces. I'll use the words of Al Stewart to modernize some of this talk a little bit because Al Stewart in his 18-minute uh, folk anthem, his epic folk rock classic, Love Chronicles, uh, shares the story this way. And of course, he's, in his case, dealing with an unmarried couple. I'll quote him uh, as best I can from memory. But of course, it's a song that I'm very familiar with. I can remember the first girl that I made love to. It was not a park in the lower pleasure gardens in Bournemouth just after dark. My mind was reeling. Oh, what a feeling. I missed the bus and walked 12 miles home. And it really didn't seem far. And all through our 17th summer, running together from crowds and ties, taking our clothes off and feeling each other with fingers and senses and mouths and eyes, incurring the glances of old disapproval from elderly local inhabitants' eyes. Oh, time, time, we hardly even knew you. You didn't touch us with your lies. 
Swell Stewart, like the author of Song of Songs, talking about fingers and senses and mouths and eyes and fragrance and smell. It's that kind of passion that is not only not inappropriate from a Christian perspective or a Jewish perspective, it's so appropriate that within that type of committed relationship, if that sort of passion is deemed as off-limits or inappropriate or wrong from one party or the other, then you know one thing with certainty. That's a seriously dysfunctional relationship. More dysfunctional, in fact, than that same relationship would be if all sorts of sexual activity was taking place and the words, my sister, my bride, were taken, well, just a touch too literally. Here's my take on my sister, my bride. First, just a quick internet search. It doesn't take long to find commentary to the effect that this is a common expression, uh, not at all uh, out of the ordinary for Middle Eastern and Near Eastern poetry of the time, a common term of endearment between lovers, uh, Egyptian perhaps being the, uh, the root of it all. And so to me, we don't have to interpret that any more literally than we have to interpret the fact that the woman uh, has a face made completely out of fruit. Just because her face reminds her lover of pomegranates doesn't mean that, you know, well, you get the idea. No, to me, the expression, my sister, my bride, in this case, especially if you're dealing with King Solomon or a metaphor about the king, is simply a way of conferring equality to the female in that partnership. And you don't hear this dwelt on much, and you don't find a whole lot of reference to it online, which I think is interesting that, you know, more than 2,000 years later, more than, you know, probably 2,500 years later, we still don't have a grip on the, even the idea that in that particular society, the equality of lovers could be crucial. And yet it's here, right before us, with the use of the word sister in this text, that the king is saying that, uh, I do not view you as a subject. I do not view you as a, as, well, as a child bride or as a gift to me or anything like that. I view you as somebody who is as equal as a sibling or even more equal than a sibling, perhaps, because a sister at that time might not have been you know, purely equal. We're talking about you know, the you know, Hebrew society. But certainly my sister, my bride, confers a great deal more equality than my concubine. And I think that was the distinction that was being made there. Distracting, though it is. Here's another end of the distraction, though. Ed Young, who is a well-known leader of a megachurch, recently staged a publicity stunt, uh, which I've heard jokingly referred to as a sex pyramid. I don't know whether that was Young's expression or just the expression attached to it. Uh, one of the pastors, either Young or one of the other ones, had um, tried to inspire his the married couples in his congregation to have sex once a day at least for seven straight days. I'm not sure I know what that accomplishes, but the pastors were, I think, saying that sexual intimacy in marriage is really, really crucial. And in the church today, with all the hang-ups about sex, with all the, the do's and don'ts, or really the perceived don'ts, where I don't think those perceptions that God is saying no hold up to any sort of scriptural analysis, Young actually said that uh, he, well, he brought a bed up. Uh, and said that uh, his wife were going, he and his wife were going to stay in bed for 24 hours on the roof of his church to encourage members of his congregation and others to take part in what he calls a sex experiment. So it is his words. Dallas pastor Ed Young and his wife Lisa began staging a bed in on Friday morning. This is an article that was written January 13th, 2012 by Daniel Florian on the Pathios.com site. They say they want to illustrate that sex begins in heaven. 
It's time to put the bed back in church and God back in the bed because God is the one who thought up sex, says Ed Young, senior pastor of the church. While in bed, the Youngs plan to have bedside interviews via Skype with various pastors and friends to discuss the tantalizing truths about sex as God intended. So that's the that's the story that I referred to earlier. Of course, the problem that I've got with that is that although he he may be emphasizing that certainly there's a, a great deal of content in Song of Songs that suggests that oral sex is uh, real, valid, sanctioned by Scripture, and that the touch and feel sort of stimulation, that there's nothing wrong about this. Song of Songs, by any account, does not describe a lights-off missionary position relationship. But the writings that this pastor and others have done cannot – They just can't write the words without stopping to specify how important it is that this type of relationship only applies to married couples. I'll get to that idea in just a second. But that it also only applies to people of opposite genders who are married. So uh, the rules become first and foremost. So they're acknowledging what the Bible says about sex. That's great. But they're still so caught up in the legalism that they own that the assumptions that they've made um, have to trump everything. Assumptions about whether or not you know, whether the concept that all men are created equal means that all men are attracted to women, uh, for example. So we know that any uh, sex education manual coming out of this side of the political spectrum is going to fall so short of usefulness that there's no point in even discussing whether or not uh, it should be read or it should be referred to. No, instead, what I'd like to do, and, and I, this is a point where I could easily go in and share comments and those conversations in the past with Karen and Laura about sex education and what happens when sex education is handled badly in religious education. One of them uh, having spent a lot of time in Baptist-led parochial schools and the other one in Catholic-led schools. And each one of them, the topic of sex or the truth about what the Bible says was uh, a secondary concern or not a concern at all because the most important thing was the list of do's and the list of don'ts. Now, I would prefer instead to say that Uh, Within this sort of committed relationship, all bets are off. And it is, of course, one of the best reasons to be in a committed relationship. So where does marriage fit in? Uh, Because to me, it's the less interesting of the two things I want to hit before I stop today. One is the idea of, of marriage as a committed relationship. The other is the idea of why God is using sexual analogies in the first place. If you believe that the Bible itself is God breathed, for example. That's a question that has to be answered, because even if Song of Songs was the last book that made it into the Bible, it made it into the Bible. So what's up with that? Well, first off, I personally would be a hypocrite if I said anything other than this type of sexual expression belongs in marriage. I'd be a hypocrite because that's how I've lived my life said it before and I'll say it again. It's to me not something to dwell on. It's not something that anybody should be. It's not the headline. But I've lived within one sexual relationship in this lifetime. That doesn't mean that before I was dating my wife, I didn't, uh, you know, kiss some girls at the door at the end of a date. But it means that I am, you know, possess a great deal of information about my wife that I don't have comparable information on from any other woman before. And I think that's been a powerful blessing for me and something where if it were you know, possible, I personally believe it's possible for someone else to model that behavior and live that way. Well, there's rich rewards there. But even if you have had previous sexual experience, once you get into this kind of committed relationship, investing fully in it is the best way to go. Because 
the more fully you're invested, the more deeply um, you're um, committed to one another, the more easy it is, the more readily available it is. The kind of removal of, of hangups, the kind of honesty, the kind of passion that's reflected in this particular piece of poetry. That's a good segue for me, I think, into what's the religious idea here? Uh, is this a, a book that simply is doesn't belong? If we were to to play the Sesame Street game, game and gather four books of the Bible together, and one of those books was Song of Songs, it's almost always going to win the one of these things doesn't fit together game, right? It's the one that doesn't belong. But I don't think that's necessarily true. We're not very good at understanding love. We tend as a society to put a lot of barbed wire fences around it. And obviously that's true in the ministry that I've just described from some of these other evangelical pastors who cannot define the the joy of sexual love and the availability of passion without first saying who it's not for. They've got to start with what it's not about. And all these negative qualifiers, all these disqualifiers, to me are inherently a problem. I'll cite again the lyric from uh, XTC and their song, The Ballad of Peter Pumpkinhead, where in that song, the Peter Pumpkinhead character, who's, who's literally uh, come to remind us what God's love is all about, make some enemies and they try to trap him. They try to, they try to frame him in a sex scandal or put him in a situation where he's got to answer questions that would be contradictory to traditional Christian thought. And the lyric goes, uh, Peter Pumpkinhead put to shame governments who would slur his name, but plots and sex scandals failed outright. Peter merely said, any kind of love is all right. So anytime you get a Christian who is like, likely to say, well, this brotherly love, this agape love is, is what it's all about, and the rest doesn't matter or is lesser in some ways, probably owes it to himself, herself, to read Song of Songs again. To understand God's love for us from a Christian perspective, you've got to understand all the varieties. You've got to understand the, the parent-child love that comes at that moment when the child has fallen down a staircase and is momentarily uh, lifeless, for want of a better word, at the bottom of the stairs, uh, dazed, potentially severely harmed. That emotion that wells up inside a mother or a father, that sense of protection, that desire to go back in time and, and correct the issue and prevent it from happening, the overwhelming sense of what can I do to make this better, that's part of God's love. You've got to understand that if you're going to have any hope of understanding what the Bible means by love. You also need to understand the love of friendship. But you also need to understand brotherly, sisterly love and, and all these things. So this, this love of mankind, but you're still missing a crucial point if you do not understand that God is saying in Scripture that his love for us is like the love of this passionate couple. They know each other well enough to have a pretty good idea what each other's bodies are like. They have developed a passionate relationship, not just with the person, not just with the person as a whole, but with specific body parts of that person, parts that might be, you know, compared to pomegranates or apples or clusters of grapes or whatever. God wants us to understand love from this kind of passionate perspective, the kind of love that keeps you up at night. When you're separated from that person, the kind of love that actually includes the warning, hey, you know what? Don't arouse passion too soon, because the kind of love that God has for us is the kind of love that would consume an ordinary human, the kind of love that can only be described inadequately 
with words like desire. Does God love us the way somebody who is inflamed with an overwhelming and unsatisfied and potentially unsatisfiable sexual lustful desire? Is that a piece of what God means by love that has to be understood to even begin to glimpse the full variety of things that are meant by love? Absolutely. How do I know this? The Bible told me so. Sophie B. Hawkins grew up in a colorful but troubled New York family and found an outlet for her yearning and imagination in music at 14 years old. Drawn to the intensity and spell of rhythm, she left home then and moved in with her African drum teacher, Godson, and African master drummer, Babatunde Alatunji, to learn, eat, and breathe music. She entered the rarefied realm of female percussionists, playing with a number of artists, including Brian Ferry, until she literally found the strength of her own voice. In 1992, she cut her first demo as a singer, and it would go on to become the international hit single, Damn, I Wish I Was Your Lover, showcasing the tough but tender, movingly transparent vocals that would become her trademark. I remember hearing that Sophie B. Hawkins album, Tongue and Tales, the day it came out. By the way, the uh, quote I shared there was from the bio online at sophiebhawkins.com. This is, uh, if not her own words, it's words published on her own website. I remember when that album came out because when you're working in a record store, a new release, especially a heralded new release, you know, there's no way it could miss your notice. Sony Records, uh, Sony Music was putting that CD out, and there was a lot of buzz. Was this going to be the next Madonna, for example? Uh, none of that talk interested me. I wasn't really interested in the next Madonna. I felt like we had an, enough with one, right? No one really knew what to do with Sophie B. Hawkins. She didn't really become the next Madonna. And despite the fact that her second album, in my opinion, went in a much more dance direction and produced the pop hit single, As I Lay Me Down, it wasn't true to the voice that I had heard from her. And when she came out with Timber later, I think we were back where we were in the first place. And it's really those two albums that I would focus on if I was trying to recommend a playlist. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with As I Lay Me Down or Don't Don't Tell Me No from that Whaler album. Those are very good songs. In fact, Don't Don't Tell Me No is alarmingly danceable for my personal music taste. But it's really the, the rhythm and the lyrics from Tongue and Tales in 1992 that caught my eye and established a relationship for me with Sophie B. Hawkins as a singer that has carried forward to this day. I remember as early as 1992 thinking to myself that this woman simply must be omnisexual. I don't know that I had the, the term in my head, and I don't know if I'm using the term properly now, but it struck me that her expressions of sexuality did not have any laser-like focus on any one or on anything. She wasn't speaking heterosexually or bisexually, which, you know, perhaps is closer to the truth. She simply was expressing passion in a lot of different ways. Hawkins writes the overwhelming majority of her own work. Uh, from that first album, the only song not penned by her was a reinterpretation of I Want You by Bob Dylan, where she plays it very close to Dylan's original. 
and by not extrapolating the genders, uh, by leaving the chambermaid a chambermaid, and clearly a female chambermaid, Hawkins was expressing ideas that at the time was not very welcome in pop music. I think we're probably much more comfortable today with that kind of exploration of sexuality that's different from, you know, the heterosexual norm, for want of a better word. And in the song Carry Me, which I referred to early on in the Mother's Day episode of Inappropriate Conversations, the things that she says in the song about her mother and the almost Yoko Ono-ish moments of simply orgasmic bliss at the end of the song are certainly eye-raising, much more concerning than any expression like my sister, my bride. And yet there's an honesty there that I think really works. I didn't realize it when I was first hearing this uh, album in 1992, an in-store play over the speakers in the store, that perhaps what attracted me most to the music was the rhythm. In fact, it wasn't until I saw The Cream Will Rise, a DVD that was directed by her partner, before I kind of caught on that this was intentional. It wasn't just that her use of uh, various different kinds of bongos and toms and drums and marimba was, uh, was interesting and exciting and, and all that, but that it was her idea, and it was driven by her. The quote that I opened this different drummer segment with, um, yeah, I wasn't aware of that until I saw that documentary. To me, she was just a pop singer, a pop singer who happened to have some interesting rhythmic ideas and some very cool percussion. Eventually, both her lyrical ideas and the instrumentation that she would use would get her in trouble, and her big-time major record label pretty much fought tooth and nail with her over the release of her third album, Timbre. That album has been released and is available, and uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful record. It has two or three moments of lyrics that I really, really enjoy. Uh, the fact the first two songs on that CD are among my favorite of all of Sophie B. Hawkins' lyrical work. But later on in the album, uh, songs like Mmm, My Best Friend and The Darkest Child had lyrics that I'm sure the record label was uncomfortable with, and that we still weren't in a point in time where the record labels knew what to do with those kind of lyrics coming anywhere other than rap or heavy metal. They were okay with the parental warning sticker and uh, uses of the F word in other words on those types of releases, but they weren't ready for it on an album that they'd, they'd hoped was going to be pop. Again, no one knew what to do with Sophie B. Hawkins. She doesn't sound like a folk singer. A lot of her music is very dance and, and pop oriented. And yet she clearly by this time wasn't going to be the next Madonna. You put all that together with the use of instruments like cello and banjo on the release and Sony music, or at least representatives of the company, allegedly chose to draw the line there and say, we're not refusing to release your album because of its lyrical content. We're not refusing to promote you as an artist because we're uncomfortable with your sexuality. We're you know, just we don't think that you should be playing a banjo on a song that we thought was going to be a hit single. If you've heard the song Lose Your Way, it is a hit single. Uh, there's no doubt about it. it. It's a spiritual brother, musically, to As I Lay Me Down, which was a huge single, top 10. But in this case, the record label chose not to promote it. And, so, and Sophie B. Hawkins has been an independent artist ever since. Truth is, she's been an independent artist all along. And that's among the things that I like the most about her. She uses a poetic writing style a primal, rhythmic, driving beat that is only there to hear if you're listening for it, that otherwise the songs are very consistent with the music of the 90s and, and even now in modern times in terms of the instrumentation. So 
it's not that she's trying to fool anybody, but she's being herself. She's being herself in the media of the culture in which she lives. Later on, decades, centuries from now, Sophie B. Hawkins may be one of a slew of current female artists, I'd put Tori Amos in that same boat, that will be interesting anthropologically, not just musically, that the things that they were doing with their lyrics and with their music and with their approach to the music industry will speak volumes about who we were in these times that we live in, but more who these particular artists and others like them wanted us to be. Somewhat like the idea of dropping extremely sexually oriented poetry in the middle of the books of wisdom of Hebrew scriptures, um, Sophie B. Hawkins doing the same sorts of things. There's a couple lyrics I want to share as I wrap this up. I don't believe that they're as profound as, uh, as the works, uh, the poetry that we heard for Valentine's Day in Song of Songs, and I don't even think that they resonate as strongly with me as Al Stewart's epic folk rock poem, Love Chronicles. But they do, in some ways, speak of the mixture of spirituality that's inside her work and perhaps explains as much as any why there's nothing that she can sing about. There's no you know, conflict she can get into musically with any record label that would make me stop listening. My perspective on her is that in some ways, after that first album came out, or maybe after the second one, between the release of Whaler and the subsequent buzz that came around as I lay me down as a hit single almost a year went by between the album's release and the audience finding that one song and making a relationship with it I think you get the impression that maybe a lot of you know radio types jump ship she wasn't singing what they expected to hear she didn't again didn't turn out to be the next Madonna wasn't the next Paula Abdul and they didn't know what to do with her as a result to me there was always going to be a depth there that was going to change the impression so Two quick quotes from the song Save Your Child on her first album, the concept of there's a savior born every day. These are words you wouldn't expect to see in a pop song. Colored rainbows in the rain, you follow to a pot of gold. There's a savior born every day in the valley of your soul. This isn't just a throw off one line. That's the chorus. And later on, that there's a savior born every day. There's a savior born every night is a descant in the background. It's crucial to the entire lyric of the song. The other one for me, though, is from No Connection, off Timbre. You think you know me, but you don't know my way around. Hell is just below me, and that's why I keep falling down. I'm praying to resist temptation, staying within my constellation, weighing every intonation, betraying alienation. For the artist that can write those particular lyrics, and as a different drummer, do so with an intentional, willful, rhythmic background, she's not going to lose me as a fan over any decision that she makes in her personal life. And that's perhaps a standard that we should, we should learn to live with. Or if as you know, conservative Christians, we're going to raise the standard about sexual talk and sexual behavior or sexuality in general, that is a litmus test for who the good people are and the bad people are, then you might as well take the Bible you own straight to the dumpster or donate it to charity, because that litmus test, due to the book Song of Songs alone, is going to rule that literature out of your library. (laughs) 
once again, I want to thank Karen and Laura for their help with the poetry reading in this particular episode. I couldn't have done it without them. I I conceived of it. This is one of the first inappropriate conversations I thought of doing when the show started. And I penciled in like the first Valentine's Day. Let's let's bring this up right around there. But a year ago, I realized there's no way I can read this poem myself. It doesn't make sense. It it changes gender. It changes orientation. It's conversational. And as it turns out, a little more research, I needed three voices to make that happen. I could not be happier with the two guest voices. And if you haven't listened to podcasts on Simply Syndicated, like Starbase 66, and you like what you heard in this episode, there's a lot more of Karen's voice available on that show. Thanks for listening.